um, the Bible now. So if you want to follow along with me, it's on page 8 of your zines. Uh, the first reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion." And the second reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Jesus then left that place and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was, custom, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they, no longer, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate." God's word. So I'm um, thankful for letting me be here. How does that work? This thing here? Every time I do that, it just comes straight out. Is that going to work? Okay, thank you. Um, Justin's my name. I'm the senior minister of the church. I work with Craig. Um, but Craig, um, you know, with a team of leaders here, you know, has responsibility. And so uh, I don't. I consider it a privilege to be here, not not a right, if I can put it that way. And I, I love to be able to address this congregation from time to time. And um, so thanks for having me. Thanks for inviting me, Craig. Um, hey, the Brett Kavanaugh thing has really got me going. I can't. You know, I, not that I want to address the Brett Kavanaugh situation here. I mean, that's a door we we can't walk through uh, easily. Save to say this. Gosh, the West needs a better relational and sexual ethic than the one it has. From 17 to 87, we need better than what we currently have. What I love about Jesus is that we have a light into this situation. Those who belong to Christ, those who are members of the church, have a, a brand new way to think about relationships and marriage and covenant. I want to open up some of those things today. Make no comment there about the actual situation. I don't understand, I don't really know as much as I, I look into it, except to say we need something better, and I'm hoping that we're offering something better tonight. That's the plan. Is that all right? Can I pray? 
Father, show us what is good and right. Show us now what is good and right. Show us what is wise and loving. So show us Jesus Christ, in whose name and by whose spirit we pray. Amen. So G.K. Chesterton once famously said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. I love that line. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, it's been found difficult and left untried. We're going to talk about the Christian ideal of marriage, although we're going to talk about it in a real world tonight. And next week we're going to talk about the Christian ideal of being single, because there is an ideal there in Scripture. And in the third week we're going to talk about the Christian ideal of friendship. So beautifully prayed for a moment ago, thank you. So we're taking a break from the Minor Prophet series. We're halfway through, six weeks in, six prophets to go. But the Minor Prophets can be pretty dark. So it's nice to come up and breathe for a little bit. (laughs) So we'll come back to Nahum on October the 21st. And you know, the way ministers like things to line up, the week before Advent, we'll be looking at Malachi, the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That sort of thing keeps me up at night. I love it. So we're taking a three-week break and doing a series called Five Myths. Five myths about marriage this week, five myths about singleness next week, which I'm drawing heavily from a a, a book that's coming out, hasn't even come out, by a friend of mine. And uh, the the third week, five myths about friendship. Why? Well, it's such an important topic and it touches all of our lives. And by the way, it's been three years since we talked about it. Uh, we want to be a little light-hearted through this series, five myths. You know, we're not sort of like five big truths, just five myths, uh, even though this is a serious topic, but maybe the light touch is what is needed. But we promise to treat the issues carefully. Tell us if we don't. Caveat, I'm not dealing with same-sex marriage here. I hope that manages your expectations. Don't think, you know, he's got to raise... No, I'm not going to deal with that question. Uh, I'm going to make an assumption that there's been no plans, change of plans from God in creation. So I'm just going to deal with marriage as though it is between a man and a woman for the purposes of this discussion. I'm sure there's plenty here for same-sex couples, but I'm not going to deal with that in our time. Is that fair? Am I allowed to say that? Okay. To limit the discussion, we're not doing five talks on marriage, five talks on being single. We're doing five myths about marriage, five myths about being single, etc., because it allows us to get into the topics examine some good things without getting bogged down into all the detail. Marriage, singleness, and friendship, three very significant issues. They touch our expectations, yes. They touch our desires, and they touch our hopes. They they are tricky topics, potential minefield, mostly for me. But they are important topics, and that's because relationships are important. God has wired us thus. All these issues, including marriage tonight, can be so complex in our experience of it, so varied. I know that myself, 18 years marriage, married, and I'm pretty sure I've had a, we've had a tough gig of it, but... Uh, the... They've had a tough gig of it? <laughs> um, 
I've been married 18 years, and it's not been easy, but the more I speak to all my friends, I think, actually, you've had a pretty similar experience than I have. Consider this. In the room today, uh, there could be people who are single and very content, and people who are single and lacking contentment, single and somewhere in between. There could be people who are dating and moving towards marriage, people who are dating and not moving towards marriage. Possible there are people in the room who are in de facto relationships. Perhaps we find ourselves happily married or we're unhappily married and we really want a better marriage. Maybe the marriage course is something you think you might like to join. Or perhaps we're unhappily married and we don't want to be married anymore. Genuinely possible. Maybe we're married and we feel very connected to our spouse or maybe we're married and we feel deeply alone. Some of us might be divorced Maybe a long time ago, maybe in the process of getting divorced. Some of us might be divorced and remarried now. There might be, there might be widows in the room, widows and still single, widows and now remarried or in a relationship. With respect to friendship, we might find ourselves with many friends or few friends. We might find that there are friends online but not face-to-face. Others of us might be a key member of a very close-knit crew of friends. In other words, we come from all different experiences, all different expectations, and all different hopes. So maybe the whole series should have come with a trigger warning. We did send an email out. What is not often said on the topic is how they impact us as a community in Christ, a web of people. You touch something over here, it affects things over here. How we relate as a church community, how do we make and form friendships that last? Not always easy. How do we serve each other, whether we're widowed, single, divorced, or or married? How do we help each other to love and serve God? Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was. He said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we're here to do. Or the Apostle Peter, one of my favorites lines, love one another deeply from the heart. But to do this, For the next three Sundays, we're going to dismantle the myths around marriage, the myths around singleness, and the myths around divorce. German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote in uh, his great work, Life Together, he wrote, when the morning mists of dreams vanish, then dawns the bright day of Christian fellowship. Take that, Disney. (laughs) He's not a curmudgeon, get the point. When the morning mist of dreams vanish, then dawns the bright day of Christian fellowship. Then we get it right. What did he mean? Well, we can all have our wish dreams for communal life, and we can all have our dreams for life itself. But living by grace and love in a fallen world is a better option. I.e., community can only function when we know the truth, live by the truth rather than any myths, fairy tales, and when we live by grace rather than judgment. So five myths, and they're in your zines. I want to make one change. Went to print, but I had to rethink it. First myth about marriage is that marriage will make me happy. It's a myth that it will necessarily make me happy. There's no doubt marriage is indeed a gift from God. Marriage is the binding, the word Marriage means to bind, the binding of one man to one woman for life. 
that binding is enacted by public vows in which a covenant is made that governs their future together long before they can know how that covenant will be tested. Marriage, that binding of a man and a woman publicly by vows, is the right and only place in the Christian worldview and in the design of God in creation for three things. For sexual activity, for lifelong, not to be broken companionship. You make lots of friends through life. Uh, but, you know, if one of you decides to go and work in London, that's no fun, but you could break for a season and become friends and pick it up later. That's not the way marriage works, of course. And thirdly, for the raising of shared offspring. Now, there's complications in all that, but that's the basic plan and purpose of God. And although there is, of course, much potential joy in all of those three things, it's still fair to say that marriage was not designed by God to make me happy. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, enjoy life with your wife whom you love. You know, I hope you can enjoy it. That's good. But then he says, all the days of this havel, this transient life that God has given you. In other words, I hope you enjoy life with your wife, if it's possible, that you can. Because life is fleeting. Next, we're going to talk about the fact that those who get married and think, oh, I don't have to think about singleness anymore. Those people who get married, it's most likely that one of the couple will end up being single again in their life. You think about that. Strangely, you die together. In the Christian worldview, marriage is not everything, nor is marriage nothing. It's not everything nor nothing. And our culture tends towards these extremes. Marriage is everything, and you must have it in order to be happy. Or marriage is nothing, just a bit of paper, and you should reject it. Move in, doesn't really matter. But in the Christian worldview, marriage is not a full stop at the end of a sentence, the sort of be-all and end-all I have to have. It's a comma on the way to a greater hope, something that marriage points to in the future. Read Jesus on that question. That is, marriage points higher to another love, to God's unending love for his people. I knew that because 18 years ago, uh, I got married, and uh, two or three days before my wedding, I'm sitting on a doorstep in Atlanta, Georgia, I'm in a country I love, about to marry the person I love, about to have sex for the first time, I wasn't happy. I was like, why am I not happy? And I'm like, I'll tell you why. Not because the marriage was bad. Marriage was great. It was exactly the right thing to do. But because marriage isn't where, like it's a myth to say, that's what happiness is. Because happiness is found elsewhere than any of the good things in life that we hope it might be found in. But in any case, the Christian person will agree with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, the first reading, that marriage and singleness are both good. Right? They're both a gift from God. He says that in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. I wish that all of you as I am. I think it'd be wonderful, he says, if you're all single. That's better, you're better off single. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, you're single. Another one has that gift, married. It doesn't always feel that way, by the way, for married people who don't want to be married or single people who prefer to be married. But the Apostle Paul says both a gift. In 1 Corinthians 7, though, Paul addresses a myth among the Christians in Corinth, a myth I don't get. And it's in verse 1, and you actually need to pull out the zine and actually have a look at the bit of paper. I normally say, can you look at verse 1? I see no heads go down, and I go, whatever, you know. But this time you actually have to do it. You have to look at verse 1 there.
Tim, what to do? I don't want that to happen as an old wedding. Ugh. Pay good money. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1. Have a look at it. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1. Here's the myth. Now about the matters you wrote to me about. Now the reason I'm telling you to look at it is because you can see there's inverted commas around it. Now about the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. In the original it's good for a man not to touch a woman. That's what the Corinthians wrote to Paul about. So verse 1 is like the, an email with a re on the top. They've written an email to him saying, we believe it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And it's come back to Paul, and Paul's gone, re, your topic, let me address that question. In other words, they believed a myth that sexual desire was necessarily wrong, that if they were truly spiritual, they'd have no desire, except maybe towards God. And so they were holding up a sort of asexual super-spirituality, which, for the record, makes zero sense to me. But that's because I've drunk so deeply of the Christian gospel and not of Eastern sort of thinking or ancient Near Eastern thinking. But Paul writes and says, no, no, that's rubbish. He says, but instead, since there's so much sexual immorality around you, in the culture around you, you ought to be a light in that world. And as a light in that world, each man ought to have sexual relations with his own wife, if he's married, and each woman with her own husband. And he basically says marriage is the place for sex and quite frankly it ought to be expressed in marriage although he says I give this as a concession not a command. Verses 3 to 5 the basic gist is uh, if you want to get married you do no wrong. It's not a bad thing at all. It's a gift. Uh, and if you do you ought to have sex with each other and serve each other. That's the gist of verses 3 to 5. But it isn't a prize. It isn't everything. So verse 7 I wish all of you were as I am single like Jesus but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, one has another. Now to the unmarrieds and to those who are widows, I say, it's actually good for them to stay unmarried. And I'll give a reason in chapter 7, as I am unmarried and Jesus is unmarried. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, if they can marry. For it is better for them uh, to marry than to burn with passion. Like if you don't have a choice between burning with passion but saying, oh, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. No, just go ahead and get married. Thumbs up. Nothing wrong with that. Right? He's not saying that everyone will get married. He's saying, if there's a possibility of being married, you don't have to be single just because you want to be super spiritual. Go ahead and say, I do. You're fine. Because singleness is fine and marriage is fine. In fact, the upshot of 1 Corinthians 7 is basically everyone should take a chill pill on the question of marriage. Stop being so anxious. Now, I don't believe that will solve all sexual temptation. We'll get to that. But rather, it is saying, instead of sleeping around, instead of trying before you buy, commit to someone by covenant and stay there. That's good and right, and from God, you do no wrong. But it doesn't deliver happiness. Stanley Harawas once wrote, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment. Marriage and family will make me happy necessary for us to become whole and happy. 
the assumption is, is that there is someone just right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we'll find the right person. Harawas goes on, this moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. I love this author. We always marry the wrong person, he says. I'll tell you why. We never know whom we marry, we just think we do. Or, even when we first marry the right person, just give it a while, and he or she will change. I've been married 18 years, I'm very different from what I was in the year 2000. So is my wife. For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means that we are not the same person after we've entered it. The primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and serve and care for the stranger for whom you find yourself married. <laughs> Laura Moffat, who are you? Wow. 18 years and you're a different person than the one I said I do to. So the trick is, how do I marry, how do I stay married to Laura when she's 60 and etc. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 7, he'll say, those who want to marry face many troubles in this life and I want to spare you this. You hear that? Those who, want, those who marry will face many troubles in this life and I want to spare you this. Fights, dashed expectations, difficult children, no more me time, huge bills, huge bills. Loss, of, loss and grief. The Bishop of London said at the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge's wedding, he said, as the reality of God has faded from so many lives in the West, there has been a corresponding inflation of expectations that personal relations alone will supply meaning and happiness in this life. In other words, we used to find our happiness in God, but we gave up on God, and so we try to find our happiness in a partner. But, he says, this is to load our partner with too great a burden, like, you're supposed to be God to me? Happiness is found in God, not in marriage. Joy is found in Christ, not in domestic life, which can be very difficult. What does this mean? It means this, if you know someone who's married, it's a good bet that things are tough right now. It's a good bet. Ask them if you can help them. I mean, not in every area, in one area maybe. Because when the morning mist of dreams vanish, then dawns the bright day of Christian fellowship. Being single might be tough too, absolutely, we'll get to that. That's the first myth. The next myths are quicker. Second myth about marriage is that marriage will fix sexual temptation. You can change that if you're writing notes. It will fix sexual temptation. That's the myth. Somehow if I get married, all the sexual temptation goes out the door. See, one could read 1 Corinthians 7 as Paul saying that there are two doors that are closed when you get married. At the front door, I might burn with passion, meaning I have this strong desire for marriage and for sex. And by getting married, I'm given the God-given, honoring way of expressing that desire, front door shut. But it will be a mistake to say that this means that the back door is shut. That those who get married have no more sexual sins. It's bulldust. Is that being recorded? It's rubbish. Can you, yeah. Somehow because they can have sex, they're somehow satisfied. By the way, this is a, a view you hear regularly in the media and it's rubbish. That somehow human beings are bottles that are corked and if you don't have some release valve, that that's a problem. And if you have such a release valve, then you're released from sinning. It's an 
absolutely wrong anthropology. It's a wrong way to think about morality, and it excuses people from doing the wrong thing because somehow they had to because, because they didn't have the valve released. Wrong, 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 wrong. Evidently wrong. We're all sinners, and sin is not simply re, 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 relieved because we get to express ourselves sexually. This was brought home to me when I was a young man, when I was single. I thought this thought. Uh, I'd not had sex, and not until I was married. And Hugh Grant, remember Hugh, you know Hugh Grant, Notting Hill? You don't know this because you're all too young, but Hugh Grant was married to what I perceived to be a beautiful woman, like, wow, aren't you lucky, Hugh Grant, the young man thinking that way, found with a prostitute in a car on Sunset Boulevard in LA. And I'm like, I don't get how that happens. She doesn't understand. Then it dawned on me then, and was confirmed in marriage, sexual desire is not curbed simply because one is married or one is able to have sex. The desires are still there, and the heart is still deceptive. The sexual images in our society are bombarded everyone's way, and they're present online in pornography. And the romantic myths are still being scribed in romantic novels, allowing people to close their eyes and imagine someone better than the person they sleep with. The devil is still intends to trap people like King David, resting on the roof of his palace, looking over at someone beautiful. Jesus says, because your hearts were hard, that Moses allowed for the loosing of marriages. So the heart is the problem, and a new heart is the answer. Your spouse is not the answer, a new heart is the answer. Proverbs chapter 4, above all else, guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. Or Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? I can't even understand my own desires. Which is why we need the new heart promises in Ezekiel 36, where God says to you in Christ, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, and I'll remove from you your heart of stone, the cynical one that doesn't want to obey God, and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to obey me. We need the new heart, and we know that new heart in Christ Jesus by the power of his spirit. And by the way, there's still no quick answers, but the fruit of the spirit will be born over time as people wrestle with their own hearts. That's the second myth of marriage. Third myth of marriage is that marriage is private. That's the myth of marriage. Truth is, marriage is public. In our world's view, marriage is private, and therefore a wedding is a mere celebration of private love. You get to carve up the dance floor and clap your friend because they have this private love and you're able to sort of join it for a brief moment. But in the Christian worldview, marriage is a public good, an institution, a thing you join that is bigger than the couple. Marriage is the thing that is the bricks and mortar for a functioning society. You bind yourself, a man to a woman, which often, although not always, they go into a bedroom and come out with children who will form part of society. Now, by saying this, I'm not saying that the state should or shouldn't have a register of married couples. I can see the arguments both ways. Rather, I'm simply saying that in the Christian worldview, marriage is embedded in creation. It's from God as part of what we call the creation mandate, which means there isn't just a Christian thing, although there's a Christian version of marriage, Marriage itself is for everyone who fits the criteria in creation. That's why the writer of Hebrews says marriage should be honoured by all. It's one of those few parts of the New Testament where the writer is sort of speaking to the whole of society and saying, 
You want to know the truth about marriage? Marriage should actually be honored by everyone. And the marriage bed ought to be kept pure. You like that? Wow. I was read at a wedding yesterday. I was like, brave in our culture. Why? Why should the marriage bed be kept pure? Because God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Why is it important? It's important so that we can keep each other accountable. The upshot is we ought to be able to speak into our relationships. You heard someone make a wedding vow. You ought to be able to speak into it. You ought to be able to encourage healthy ones, challenge negative ones, support people who are engaged in toxic marriages. We'll come to that in a moment. We ought to be able to do this before it's too late. Maybe we ought to include community in our relationship before we get married, as we move towards marriage. Like, for example, do you think we're a good idea? What areas do you think I need to change in? How do you think I can show love to my family better than I currently do? I'm engaged in a situation right now. I've got a dear friend, and I'm working with him on, because there's a group of us that perceive one particular issue in his marriage, and we're helping him to do that. And I've got to tell you, he's a dear friend, and I hope when he can see it in my marriage, he'll be able to speak to me too. Okay, third. Marriage is public, not private. The fourth myth that I've got for marriage is that marriages can't be loosed or released. That marriages, in the Christian worldview, they can't be divorced. It's impossible to get a divorce. That's a myth in the Bible. Now, this is a huge topic, deserves its own talk, with much discussion and uh, debate. But here, I just want to say this. The claim that a marriage can't be released or loosed, that divorce is never an actual option is not the view of the Bible and can cause great damage. Marriages can be loosed. They were bound, they can be loosed. Divorce is allowed in the Old and the New Testaments and anyone who says otherwise is not reading the Scriptures carefully enough. I think we came up against Roman Catholicism for hundreds of years and didn't know quite what to do with their particular reading of the text, but if you don't mind me saying, so I think the Catholics are wrong on this question. Can I say that? In Mark chapter 10, you can ask me about that later, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is asked if it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife. The religious leaders are testing him, and that's partly because John the Baptist got beheaded for challenging Herod's marriage to Herodias, and partly because then as now there was a political divide between conservatives and liberals about marriage, and it's clearer in another gospel where somebody asks, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That's a sort of liberal position. But Jesus does two things, because he sidesteps the question, as he always does. Not because he's avoiding it, but because he's getting to the heart of it. He says, what did Moses command you? Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away, for her sake, by the way, because without clarity, it's, she's unable to remarry. They say, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away, and he says, actually, I'll tell you what, it's because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this law. That's the issue. The issue is your heart. In fact, I believe all marriages end because one or both hearts go hard towards each other or towards God. So if at all possible, guard your heart. And secondly, he says that divorce was not the intention of God in creation. In creation, the plan was that a man and woman are bound. In the beginning, God made the male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and another and be bound his wife, the two shall become one flesh, so they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. Not that they 
can't be separated, they evidently can be. You know that from 1 Corinthians 7. But rather, no one ought to come in to separate them. It's about the intention of other people who interfere with a marriage. And so the New Testament allows for people to be no longer bound, and I believe, therefore, free to remarry. The New Testament, though, allows for people to be no longer bound, but for serious reasons, rather than trivial reasons. And John the Baptist was saying of King Herod, you've got trivial reasons for being married to Herodias. I'll give you an example. If Barnaby Joyce came to me and said, can I get remarried in your church? I'd say, heck no. No. Because he had a wife and five daughters had a staff at the same time. I said, no. Marriages can, in fact, be loosed. But everything in that situation, if you don't mind me, I'm not trying to be judging, I'm just trying to say everything in that situation from a Christian point of view isn't right. Under what circumstances would a marriage be loosed? I'll give you some examples. Things like adultery, Jesus says, or if your spouse decides to leave, the apostle says. Awful things where the vows are clearly broken. Infidelity, desertion, silent treatment over a year, domestic violence, control and intimidation, safety of children, all of those are examples. Not exhaustive either. They constitute infidelity of some kind. I pray that you never experience what you might call a, what we might call a toxic marriage. Maybe it in fact has happened to you. Margaret Atwood once dryly wrote, a divorce is like an amputation. You survive it, but there's less of you. I've said that to people who've gone through a divorce and they're like, yeah. Well, we at the church, we want to help you again. We want to help you be whole again. Paul says God has called you to live in peace. We want to help that peace to come your way as much as we can. And not hinder it. Fifth and finally and briefly, marriages validate you. That's the fifth myth, that marriage validates you. That in some sense you can say, look, I'm married. I'm, you know, I have these children, etc., etc. It's a temptation. In the movie Muriel's Wedding, which I watched again last week on Netflix, first time I've watched it in 25 years, I laughed 25 years ago and could barely watch it today. Funny how we change. Muriel's friend says to her, remember how you were in school? You were so quiet and you could hardly talk. You were too shy to look at people. But now you're a success and someone wants to marry you. You're not nothing, Muriel. You've made it. Marriage doesn't validate you, God does. Even in Muriel's wedding, Muriel becomes something when she ceases to think that marriage is validation. She tells the truth and returns to a friend rather than capitulates to a fairy tale. Marriage doesn't prove anything and it's not meant to. And that's because you are made in the image of God, precious in his sight, and if you're in Christ, redeemed by his blood. And that means that marriage points higher than itself to the approval of God and to the future that God has prepared for us, which is why Jesus says, at the end, they will neither be married nor given in marriage. And that's because marriage is not a full stop, the be all and end all. It's a comma on the way to something greater. A point C.S. Lewis makes in that quote in the front of your zines when he says, the books or the music or the marriage or the fairy tale in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, or good marriages, for example, that's a good image of what we really desire in the future by God, 
But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, if you think marriage is a full stop, the be all and end all, then these good things turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshippers. For they are not the thing itself, they are only the scent of a flower we've not found, the echo of a tune we've not heard, news from a country we've never visited. Paul's going to say that's true of singleness too. Says, Lord says, do you think I'm trying to weave a spell when I say all these things? Well, perhaps I am, but remember your fairy tales. I love this. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness which has laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. And we need a word from God, a gospel really, which takes away the spell of a fairy tale that marriage will make me happy. It's this thing, this be all and end all. So I want to say to you, if you're widowed here today or divorced or married or single or remarried, if you're happy or lonely or frustrated or sad or joyful, no matter what, press into God. We do it together. Love the finished work of Christ and rely on him and not on any spouse and certainly not on any fairy tale. And that's because God has called you to live in peace. Can I pray? Father, save us from fairy tales and give us the truth. Break the enchantment. Now, the truth is marriage is a gift. There's no doubt about it. Uh, Paul says so is singleness. Jesus himself was single. But for those of us who are married, Father, help us not to load our partner with anything they can't bear. Help us instead to find our happiness, my, our joy in you, and therefore to press into you no matter what. We pray that it'll be true for those of us who've, who've, whose marriages have unwound, or um, pray that we especially might press into you for those of us who find ourselves in toxic situations. Help us to find ways to support each other, to get people out of difficult situations, but in uh, when there's things we need to change and grow in and learn. May the fruit of your spirit, this new heart, be alive, growing in each one of us. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.